الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله Verily the praise belongs to Allah, we praise Him, seek His assistance and forgiveness, and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the evil consequences of our deeds. Whoever Allah guides, there is no one that can lead him astray, and whoever Allah leads astray, there is no one that can guide him. I bear witness that nothing deserves to be worshipped except Allah alone, and that He has no partners, and I bear witness that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his slave servant and his messenger. We would like to begin this lecture this evening, the twelfth in our series of lectures concerning Fiqh al-Hadith. Fiqh al-Hadith. Uh, and I would just like to comment on the meaning of this name or title that we are using for this course, Fiqh al-Hadith and just remind myself and all of us of the importance of fiqh al-hadith there are still some people who are saying to us that such a course as we are taking here where we are discussing issues of fiqh and we are mentioning some of the differences of opinion some of them sometimes and mentioning the evidences for these positions or opinions that there's no need for such. This kind of course is really for people on a high level. Those who are very advanced in knowledge on the university level or professors, that's what they say. And that it's not proper that such kind of uh, study should be undertaken by ordinary Muslims like you and I. The strange thing, especially, they say that especially for new Muslims, and when they say new Muslims, unfortunately, too often they mean non-Arab Muslims. Then whoever is not an Arab, in their mind, it is as though we are all lumped together. New or old, from Muslim families or otherwise, it doesn't matter. If you are non-Arab, then it's as though you are like a new Muslim, you don't know anything. Therefore, this kind of course, it's not... Uh, fitting or suitable. Just today someone said this to me. I am becoming offended by such comments. It is as though if you are not an Arab, then you, you don't have intelligence. You don't have the ability to comprehend the deen of Allah. When this deen is for all human beings on the earth, Arab and non-Arab. It is strange that these very people who say such on the other hand, they demand for the Arab people that you have to study the madhab. You have to study a madhab, one madhab. If they were saying that no need to study the opinions of the madhahib and the, those scholars, but really you should only study the hadith, the sunnah, and understand what the Prophet ﷺ taught us and demonstrated for us. If they were saying such, that would be acceptable but on the one hand they are saying for us, 
the non-Arabs, we shouldn't know about the opinions of the madhabs and the scholars and the imams. No need for such. Just teach the fiqh simple. Show them how to make wudu, how to make salat. No need for these detailed and difficult deep discussions. But on the other hand, they want the Arabs to study the madhab with all of their differences and fine points and depth that they go into discussion and philosophy even on many issues without basing their opinions often on evidence from the authentic sunnah. But yet they say they would force anyone who says he doesn't study any madhab, he just reads hadith or just reads Quran and hadith. They said, no, you have to study the imam. You have to study from an imam. In any case, I just wanted to remind myself and you all, brothers and sisters, that the study of fiqh al-hadith, it really is the proper way that one should learn his religion, to go directly to the source, the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, and take the fiqh or the understanding in these matters from the example and the guidance and the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ. That doesn't mean that someone should just open up Sahih al-Bukhari, or Sahih Muslim, or Sunan Abu Dawood, and just read it on their own independently, without knowing what the scholars said about it. No, we don't mean that. But we mean that the basis of our study should be the Sunnah, the authentic Sunnah, <coughs> in light of the understanding of the scholars, and the Imams, of the Madahib, all of them, not only four of them, but all of the well-known scholars of Ahl Sunnah, Wal Jama'ah. Uh, just quickly, I would like to review the hadith we took in the last lecture, lecture number 11. Uh, we mentioned in that lecture, hadith number 28, which is the hadith of Abu Hurairah, recorded by Al-Bukhari and Muslim, that the Prophet ﷺ met him in one of the streets in Al-Madina while he was in a state of Janaba. He was Junub, major sexual impurity. He said, that is Abu Hurairah he said, I slipped away from him. In another narration, it said that the Prophet ﷺ took him by his hand and went with him some ways and then he sat. And when the Prophet ﷺ sat, Abu Hurairah slipped away. In any case, he went and took a ghusl and then he returned to the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Aina kunta ya Abu Hurairah? Where have you been, O Abu Hurairah? He said, I was Junuban, Kuntu Junuban. I was in a state of major sexual defilement, and I hated or disliked to sit with you while I am in any condition other than a state of tahara, purification. The Prophet ﷺ told him, Subhanallah, inna al mu'min la yanjus. Subhanallah, inna al mu'min, the believer, la yanjus, is never najis, defiled, unclean. And as we mentioned, Last week, the meaning here, it is referring primarily to the spiritual state of the human being. The believer, his state, his spiritual state is a state of purity always. From this hadith, the shaykh mentioned a number of points from them. He said that uh, al-janaba, the state, the state, spiritual state, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, not the physical state, but the state of being impure from as a result of janaba, that that condition that the person is in is not, doesn't make his body nejis. And it doesn't make it prohibited to touch him 
and then if anyone touched that person who was in a state of Janabah they would become unclean secondly he said uh, that the person whether dead or alive the human being the inner being does not become unclean the believer does not become unclean and this doesn't mean that if some unclean matter some filthy or unclean matter gets on any part of your body it doesn't mean that it doesn't make that part of the body unclean yes it does and it has to be cleaned or removed but it means that the human being himself uh, or herself is not uh, najis or unclean also he said <coughs> that from this hadith we understand that it is permissible to delay the performance of ghusl or the complete bath from janabah it is permissible to delay it because Abu Hurairah was in need to take a ghusl from Janaba, but he didn't take it he was going someplace walking through the street when he met the Prophet and the Prophet didn't criticize him for delaying the Janaba, but he only criticized him for slipping away from him without taking his permission and number four uh, that it is expected and required that we should uh, look up to and have high regard and respect for the people of virtue and knowledge and character and that when we sit in their company we should be in our best condition or in our best appearance outwardly and inwardly and finally from this he said that we understand that it is legislated to seek permission that one should seek permission uh, who, from the one who is in charge or in authority when you are in their presence before leaving as the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam criticized Abu Huraira in questioning him why he had slipped away from him without uh, taking permission from him and thus seeking permission from the one in authority is one of the matters of good behavior the second hadith, hadith number 29 is the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha she said that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam he used to take a ghusl from the state of Janaba from major sexual impurity by washing his hands then making the wudu as you make wudu for salat then he used to rub his fingers into his hair until he was relatively certain that he had reached the scalp at that time he would pour water over his head three times and then he would wash the rest of his body also Aisha radiallahu anha said in this hadith that I used to take a bath along with the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam from one container and we used to put our hands in consecutively or in turns taking a bath at the same time from that same container the shaykh says about this hadith a number of points are derived from it from amongst those points is that it is legislated in Islam that one should take a ghusl or complete bath from the state of Janaba major sexual impurity uh, and that is required whether the person has emission of semen yani an orgasm or not the mere fact that the husband and wife came together in sexual intercourse even if they didn't complete the sexual intercourse it requires that they should take a ghusl and this uh, is the opinion of many of the scholars and it is mentioned clearly in the hadith of Abu Huraira which uh, will follow tonight in the lecture for tonight uh, also that the com- complete ghusl that is mentioned in this hadith begins by washing the hands 
first washing the hands and then uh, proceeding to the rest of the ghusl including making the wudu that you make like for salat and uh, rubbing the fingers through the hair <coughs> pouring water over the head and then washing the rest of the body also from this hadith we understand that it is permissible for the spouse that for one spouse or the two people who are married to look at one another it is permissible it's not unlawful for a man to look at his wife or a woman to look at her husband and that it is also permissible uh, to take a ghusl for them to take a ghusl together at one time from one container or in one place also we understand from this hadith that the parts of the body which are washed in wudu precede the other parts of the body in the ghusl from janabah before washing the rest of the body the parts of the body of wudu are washed first except the washing of the feet and on this point um, there is some difference of opinion is the feet are the feet also washed in the wudu during ghusl uh, before the rest of the body or is it delayed until later after the complete washing of the body and then the feet are washed finally and some of the scholars as we mentioned last week said that the feet may be washed with the rest of the wudu and then washed again after the completion of the ghusl uh, also the saying in this hadith of the Prophet ثُمَّ or, or the saying about how the Prophet used to make ghusl that he then used to make wudu the wudu for salat then he washed the rest of the body this indicates that the washing of the parts of wudu remove or eliminate the major as well as the minor state of impurity for verily the matter which required the washing of the parts of the body for wudu is the same matter which required the washing of the rest of the body yani it is one matter it is the state of janaba which required the washing of the parts of wudu as well as the rest of the body and therefore that washing of the parts of the body in wudu removes not only minor impurity but major impurity for the one who is in a state of janaba uh, the next hadith, hadith number 30, the hadith of Maymuna radiallahu anha, one of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and she also described the ghusl of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and she mentioned in her description some things that were not mentioned in the first hadith, the hadith of Aisha as Aisha radiallahu anha mentioned some things that Maymuna didn't mention here Maymuna bint al-Harith radiallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said I put or gave to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the water that he used to purify himself from Janaba he uh, tilted that water and poured with his right hand on his left hand two times or three times washing those hands and then he washed the private part then he rubbed his hands on the ground or on the wall two times or three times to remove any impurity that remained from washing the private parts then he proceeded to perform wudu washing, rinsing his mouth and nose and then washing his face and the arms meaning from the fingertips to the elbow then he poured water over his head then he washed the rest of his body then he moved to another place and washed his feet and then she said I gave him a piece of cloth and he didn't desire it he didn't want it 
and he began to rinse or to wipe the water uh, from his body with his hands to dry himself with his hands uh, from this hadith or we, he mentions, the shaykh mentions here that from the first hadith it mentions that he washed his hands it mentions it in general without any detail and in this hadith it is mentioned that he washed his hands two times or three times secondly uh, in this hadith it is mentioned after the washing of the hands that he washed the private parts and that was not mentioned in the first hadith and this is an important part of the performance of ghusl and then he wiped his hands on the ground two or three times or on the wall as mentioned in the hadith also in this had or in the first hadith it is mentioned that he made wudu like the wudu for salat and from this we understand that he should have washed his feet in this hadith it is mentioned on the second hadith the hadith of Maimuna, it is mentioned clearly that he washed his feet after completing the washing of the whole of the body and at the end of the ghusl also he mentioned in this hadith the hadith of Maimuna. It is mentioned that she gave him a piece of cloth to dry the parts of his body with, but he did not accept it. Instead, he dried himself with his hands, removing the water with his hands. Also, the Shaykh here mentions a point about which there is difference of opinion, and the opinion of the majority of the scholars, except Al-Imam Malik, rahimahullah, is that it is not obligatory to rub the parts of the body in ghusl but it is obligatory to make sure that the water touches every part of the body uh, and this has been mentioned as the uh, and this point has been mentioned as the opinion of the majority of the scholars by Imam Nawawi and he said that also it is sufficient uh, in washing the parts of the body to wash them one time it is sufficient to wash the parts of the body one time uh, when making uh, the wudu as a part of the ghusl of Janaba, when you are making wudu and your ghusl for Janaba, it is sufficient. It is sufficient, and it is correct and acceptable even if you wash the parts of the body one time. And as we mentioned before in the discussion of wudu, it is from the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ that he sometimes washed the parts of the body only one time, and on other occasions he washed the parts of the body two times, and on other occasions three times, and three times is the most perfect. Uh, manner okay this is uh, no there was one more hadith hadith number 31 the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar that Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu said to the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is it proper for one of us to sleep while he is junub in a state of major sexual impurity and the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said naam idha tawadda ahadukum falyarqud that yes, it is permissible if any one of you makes wudu, then he may sleep while he is in a state of janaba. And in another narration of that hadith uh, in Bukhari, the Prophet ﷺ said, And this we didn't mention last week, but when I was reviewing the issue, I found this narration, I thought it's important to mention that the Prophet ﷺ said, Make wudu, then wash the private parts then sleep and if a person who doesn't make a ghusl before sleeping it is permissible even not to make wudu but it's makruh but it's acceptable if you don't make a ghusl you can just make wudu before sleeping in a state of junub but 
in this narration, the Prophet said, Make wudu at least, make wudu and wash the private parts, then you may sleep. <coughs> From this hadith, he mentions four points. The first of them, the, permissibil- the permissibility of sleeping in, in the state of when the person is junub, uh, that it's permissible to sleep be, without making ghusl as long as the person makes wudu. And secondly, that uh, the best thing and most perfect is that a person who is junub should not sleep until they take a ghusl. The third thing is that the one who doesn't take a ghusl, then he must make at least wudu before sleeping. And the fourth thing, that it is makru for a person to sleep while they are junub if they didn't take neither ghusl nor wudu. The hadith of tonight are four and they are also related to issues of uh, ghusl. Hadith number 32 from our book Taysir Al-Allam Sharh Umdatul Ahkam is the hadith of Umm Salama radiallahu anha. She was one of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. She said جاءت أم سليم رضي الله عنها امرأة أبي طلحة إلى رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فقالت أم سليم may Allah be pleased with her the wife of Abu Talha رضي الله عنه she came to the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم and she said يا رسول الله إن الله لا يستحي من الحق إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَسْتَحْيِ مِنَ الْحَقِّ She began before asking her question with a statement. She said, Verily, Allah is not shy of the truth. Allah is not shy from speaking the truth, no matter what it is about. Even if it is of those things that people are bashful to talk about, but verily Allah is not shy to speak the truth. Then after that introductory statement, she said, فَهَلْ عَلَى الْمَرْعَةِ مِنْ غُسْلٍ إِذَا هِيَ إِحْتَلَمَتْ Now her question, is it necessary for the woman to take a ghusl when she has had a wet dream, nocturnal sexual discharge or sexual dream? In her sleep she had a dream that she had sexual relations and there was some emission from her body as a result of that dream. Is it necessary for her in that case to take a ghusl? فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم نعم إذا هي رأت الماء Yes, it is necessary for her to take a ghusl if she sees الماء the water or the wetness or the uh, sexual or vaginal secretion if something was secreted or discharged from her vagina as a result of that sexual uh, dream that she had there was discharge then she must take a ghusl. In the other narrations of this hadith as you will find in Sahih Muslim, this hadith is recorded in Al-Bukhari volume 1, hadith number 171, uh, page number 171, hadith number 280, and it is recorded in Sahih Muslim volume 1, page 179, hadith number 610. And in that same area in Sahih Muslim you will find other narrations uh, of this same hadith which bring more clarity to the matter. In any case, here the Shaykh mentions the general meaning of this hadith. 
that Umm Sulaim al-Ansariya radiallahu anha she came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam to ask him about a matter but since that question that she wanted to ask about was related to the private matters or sexual matters then she and it was of those things that a person is shy or bashful to ask about usually people are shy to ask about such things for that reason she preceded her statement before asking her question she preceded that question with an introductory remark in order to reduce the effect of that question on the people who were sitting with the Prophet they were men sitting with him and she was a woman asking about such a matter so she wanted to reduce the effect of such a question in the ears of the hearers with this introductory statement so she said that verily Allah Jalla wa ala, the majestic and the most high huwa hayi Allah is al hayi the one who is I don't know how to translate it but we can say in general the meaning means the meaning of hayi means shy or bashful or very modest or something like this so she said verily he is Allah is al hayi in spite of that that Haya or modesty or shyness or bashfulness does not stop anyone from mentioning the truth or discussing important matters of truth, especially the matters of deen. Although it may be a matter that people are normally shy to mention. As long as that matter is something of importance and there is a benefit in mentioning it, then shyness or modesty should not prevent someone from learning from asking about that which is necessary to ask about. So when she, Umm Sulaim radiallahu anha, I wanted to ask this question, she proceeded it with her introductory remarks in order to lighten or to reduce the effect on those who were sitting and listening to it. Then she entered into the main topic that she wanted to ask about and she asked, is it required for a woman when she has a wet dream or sexual dream uh, in her sleep? Is it necessary for her to take a ghusl? The Prophet ﷺ answered yes, that it is necessary for her to take a ghusl as long as she saw the effect of that wet dream, yani the effect of the emission or discharge. If she saw the wetness on her body or clothing, then she should take a ghusl. From this hadith, the Shaykh mentions five points. The first of them is that it is obligatory for the woman when she has a wet dream and there is any discharge or secretion and she sees it, it is obligatory on her Yani seeing it means that she became certain that there was discharge from that sexual dream therefore she must take a ghusl also that when there is discharge from the woman or that from this hadith we also understand it is a fact that the woman does have se- sexual uh, discharge or secretion just as the man does and from this secretion or discharge that comes from the woman in the course of uh, the effect from the sexual excitement or arousement from this comes the similarity or resemblance of the child to their mother or to their father and this is indicated in the remainder of the hadith which he didn't mention here but it is reported in the narration in al-Bukhari or Muslim that the Prophet when he was asked by Umm Salama his wife, who was present when Umm Sulaim came to ask this question, Umm Salama radiallahu anhu, uh, radiallahu anha, she asked him, does the woman have sexual discharge? 
Can he, does she have a wet dream like the man does? The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, فَبِمَا يُشْبِهُهَا وَلَدُهَا yani If not so, then how does her child resemble her? Where does the resemblance come from? Unless, just as the man has seminal emission that affects the traits and characteristics of the child, so also the woman likewise has the same and it affects the uh, traits of that child and causes resemblance. Whichever one of their emission overcomes the other, then that child would resemble that parent more than the other. And this has been proven now by science, which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam from the revelation from Allah knew more than 1400 years ago. Also from this hadith, we know that it is confirmed that one of the sifat of Allah it is confirmed, as we discussed in our discussion last night, that we don't give any name to Allah or any description for Allah, except that it came in the Qur'an or in the Sunnah. From this hadith, it is confirmed that one of the sifat or characteristics of Allah is al-haya, shyness. Of course, that haya of Allah is not like the haya of human beings. As we said last night, that we don't compare the characteristics of Allah to the characteristics of human beings. Uh, but that confirmation of this sifa of al-haya for Allah is in a way that is proper and suitable and fitting to Allah's majesty and His glory. Nonetheless, that haya it doesn't, it should not prevent, and it does not prevent Allah subhanahu wa taala from speaking the truth, and likewise it shouldn't prevent any human being, their modesty or shyness, from speaking the truth or asking about the truth. Also, uh, number four he says, what we just mentioned, he repeated here, that it is that al-haya or modesty or shyness or bashfulness should not prevent someone from seeking knowledge or learning, especially uh, or particularly in those issues about which people are normally shy to discuss. But it shouldn't. Modesty should not prevent someone from asking about the matters of knowledge which are necessary. And fifth and finally he says that uh, of the proper behavior that a a Muslim should display, uh, especially in their speaking or discussions with one another, that when they talk about those things, which people normally are shy to talk about or to listen to, they should precede that subject with some introductory remarks so that it would be suitable and it would not be heavy or harsh or difficult for the people to accept or to listen to. Otherwise, people might think that someone is, uh, and he doesn't have good behavior, if you just open up a discussion talking about such matters without introductory remarks. There is some discussion about this al-haya from Imam al-Nawi in the explanation of Sahih Muslim, but because perhaps we may not have enough time, I'll leave it until later. If we have time, I'll mention it. Otherwise, we'll leave it. The next hadith, hadith number 33. The hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha. She said, Kuntu aghsil Al-Janabata min thawbi Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I used to wash the result of Janaba, the semen or seminal emission that was remaining on the, clo- the clothing of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I used to wash it away. 
take water and remove it, wash it. فَيَخْرُجُوا إِلَى الصَّلَاةِ وَإِنَّ بُقْعَ الْمَاءِ فِي ثَوْبِهِ Then the Prophet ﷺ used to immediately go to the prayer, to perform the prayer, while the water was remaining on his tobe from that washing of Aisha radiallahu anha. And in the narration of, of Sahih Muslim, it is mentioned, لَقَدْ كُنْتُ أَفْرُقُهُ مِنْ ثَوْبِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ فَرْكًا she said, I used to scrape or scratch off the remnants of that semen from the clothing of the Messenger of Allah Then he would pray in that soul or in, those, in that clothing that I scraped the semen from. In one case she mentioned that she washed it. In another case she mentioned that she scraped it. Here this means that when it was wet or moist, then she would remove it by washing with water and if it was dry she would just scrape it off simply to scrape it off, no more than that and this hadith is mentioned in Al-Bukhari volume 1 page 146 hadith number 229 and in Sahih Muslim volume 1 page 170 hadith number 566 and other narrations similar to it in the same page the general meaning of this hadith the Shaykh says uh, that, that Aisha radiallahu anha here mentions that when al-mani or semen got on the clothing of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu wasallam as a result of al-janaba being in the state of major sexual impurity from sexual relations sometimes if it was moist or wet she would wash it by using water then the Prophet wasallam would go to the prayer and the water had not yet dried from his stove and he would go and lead the people in prayer in that condition and sometimes when that semen was dry in that case she just used to scrape it from his thobe and he would pray in that thobe in that condition without washing it with water there is some difference of opinion we haven't had much ikhtilaf or difference of opinion in the hadith in recent weeks but there is some difference of opinion about this matter and it is said that the scholars differed concerning al-mani semen, semen, seminal emission is it najis or tahir? is it unclean or is it clean, pure? the first opinion is the opinion of the Hanafiya and the Malikiya yani the, the scholars of the Hanafi madhab and the scholars of the Maliki madhab and they said that it is Najis, that semen is unclean, Najis, and their proof are many hadith, like the hadith which we have mentioned here, where the washing of the thawb of the Prophet ﷺ was done. The fact that his thawb was washed from semen is a proof that it is Najis. Uh, this opinion is also the opinion of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu from amongst the Sahaba and from amongst the Tabi'een Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib and from amongst the Imams al-Imam Malik and al-Imam al-Awza'i rahimahumullah may Allah have mercy on all of them the second opinion is the opinion of al-Imam Shafi'i and al-Imam Ahmed as well as Imam Sufyan al-Thawri and Ishaq ibn Rahway and from amongst the Tabi'een Ata, the student of uh, Ibn Abbas and 
also the opinion of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma and Sa'id from amongst the Sahaba. Their opinion is the opinion that semen is tahir, it is clean. And this is also the opinion of Ibn, Imam Ibn Hazm of the Zahiri Madhab, the literalists. And it is the opinion of Shaykh al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah and many of the scholars of fiqh and hadith that it is clean. And they used as evidence for their opinion the following. They said, number one, that al-mani or semen is the essence of the life of the human being. It is the essence, the most important part of the human being. So we cannot see that the essence of the human being, that it would be something najis, unclean or khabith, dirty or filthy. While Allah has honored the human being and made the human being clean or pure, how can he make his essence unclean? Okay, this is a rational argument. They also said, uh, as a proof, the uh, hadith which mentioned of Aisha, which is authentic, that she didn't wash the semen from the clothing of the Prophet ﷺ. If it was dry, she only scraped it off, which likely would leave some remnants of that semen. And if it was unclean, how could he have then gone to the prayer and pray to the people in clothing that's unclean? As you know, the prayer requires, as preconditions, shurut, not only that the body of the person has to be clean, but his clothing has to be clean, and the place where you pray also has to be clean. Uh, so if it was unclean, she wouldn't have sufficed in just scraping it off, but she would have used water to remove it, as all other forms of najasa, or unclean things, have to be removed by water. They also said, another proof that it's not najis or unclean, is that the Prophet never ordered anyone to wash that semen from their clothing or to try to avoid it as he ordered the people to wash the urine and to try to avoid urine from getting on their clothing. He warned us against such because it's unclean and if that unclean thing gets on your clothing then it will spoil your acts of worship that require tahara. Uh, they also responded to the hadith of washing that the first opinion used that the semen was washed by Aisha radiallahu anha they responded to this by saying that the fact, the mere fact of washing that semen is not necessarily a proof that semen is unclean just as if there is some saliva or mucus on someone's clothing they would remove it and wash it off but it's not najis so in the same way they said that the reason for the washing if it was moist not because it was najis but just because it's something that you don't like to yani, unclean not najis but some unclean thing that you would remove from your clothing and it's not nice to have on your clothing this is uh, the two opinions and in any case if it's najis or not or not najis even if it's not najis it's better to remove it and to clean it from one's uh, clothing or one's body just as a form of cleanliness, general cleanliness. A Muslim tries to be clean. If you get dirt on your clothing that's not najis, you clean it off. <coughs> From this hadith, the Shaykh mentions two points are derived. The first of them, according to the second opinion, uh, that al-mani or semen is clean and pure, and that it is not obligatory, it is not wajib to wash it from the body or from the clothing or from any other thing. 
And the second point he said that it is mustahab or encouraged or commendable or recommended that someone should remove semen from their clothing or from their body that they should wash it with water if it is moist or wet and that they should scrape it off if it is dry but that it is mustahab and not wajib Hadith number 34 the hadith of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said إِذَا جَلَسَ بَيْنَ شُعَبِهَا الْأَرْبَعِ ثُمَّ جَأَدَهَا جَهَدَهَا وَجَبَ الْغُسْلُ The Prophet, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that if a man sits between the four limbs or four parts of the woman and this is an expression that is referring to the act of sexual relations if he is with the woman in that way ثُمَّ جَهَدَهَا and then he actually has sexual relations with her وَجَبَ الْغُسُلُ then it is obligatory to perform uh, the ghusl and in the narration of Imam Muslim he said he added to this not he added but it is mentioned in that report and it is authentic that if the man sits between the four parts of the woman and then he has sexual relations with her then ghusl is obligatory وَإِن لَمْ يُنزِل وَإِن لَمْ يُنزِل even if there is no sexual discharge yani if, they have, if they commit the actual sexual relation even if there is no sexual discharge it is required to make the ghusl and we mentioned this in a previous hadith that this, that this ghusl is required even without semen emission or any yani, uh, secretion from the sexual organs the ghusl is still required and this hadith is very clear on this point is it considered as janaba? it is considered that the person is in a state of janaba whoever have sexual intercourse even without semen emission they are considered to be in a state of janaba and must they are required to make a ghusl it means that the state that the person is in doesn't allow him to perform acts of worship such as prayer or any other acts that require sahara (laughs) the the semen itself according to the difference of opinion we may say that it's najis or not but it's not the matter of the semen it is the, the state that the person is in due to the contact of the sexual organ of the man with the sexual organ of the woman if the sexual organ of the man enters the sexual organ of the woman then that puts the person in a state where he is required or she is required to make a ghusl just as when someone pass wind or pass gas there is nothing unclean left on their body but the state that they are in requires that they have to make a a wudu that state that they are in from the passing of wind even if nothing unclean came out of their body just air just gas there's nothing unclean on their body but that person is in a state that requires wudu and so also when the sexual organs meet between man and woman the person even if there's no semen emission the person is in a state state that requires ghusl is it clear? (laughs) even without seminal emission no, the semen doesn't cause it 
that we might think so. But this hadith of the Prophet ﷺ makes it very clear. These are the words of the Messenger of Allah. He said that, إِذَا جَلَسَ بَيْنَ شُعْبِهَا الْأَرْبَعَةِ If he sits with her in that condition. ثُمَّ جَاهَدَهَا And he actually makes the action or the motion of having sexual relations with her. وَجَبَ الْغُسُلُ The ghusl is required. وَإِنْ لَمْ يُنْزِلْ The Prophet ﷺ said, even if there is no secretion or no emission or no orgasm, the ghusl is required. This is the ruling of Allah. Here he say, the Shaykh says, شُعْبِهَا الْأَرْبَعَةِ It means the four parts of the woman. It is a kinaya or an expression, indirect expression that means sexual relations. And the expression, ثُمَّ جَاهَدَهَا It is an expression, al-kinaya or an indirect expression that means al-ilaj, that means the entry of the penis to the vagina. This means, ثُمَّ جَاهَدَهَا It means the entry of the sexual organ of the man to the sexual organ of the woman. The general meaning of this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ saying that when a man sits with a woman in that condition, uh, between her four parts, meaning the two hands and the two legs, then the sexual organ of the man enters the sexual organ of the woman, the ghusl becomes obligatory because that person then is in a state of janaba. They are in a state of janaba even if there is no seminal secretion or emission. Because al-ilaj wahduhu yani the entering of the penis to the vagina alone the shaykh said because the entry of the penis to the vagina alone is one of those things which obligate ghusl. And that's clear from the hadith of the Prophet wajaba al-ghusl wa inlam yunzil that the ghusl becomes obligatory even if there is no emission. That means that it became obligatory only because of the entry of the sex, uh, the penis to the vagina. From this hadith, the Shaykh mentions two points. The first of them, that it is obligatory uh, to make a ghusl whenever the penis enters the vagina, even if there is no sexual emission. And the second uh, is that this hadith is a nasikh or an abrogator of the hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu anhu which is an, also an authentic hadith in which he reported that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said al-ma'u min al-ma'i al-ma'u min al-ma'i that is the authentic hadith that al-ma'u here, the water it means the water of ghusl is required as a result of al-ma'i the water which is the emission of semen from the sexual organs that hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, the meaning of it is that the water of ghusl becomes required due to the emission of semen. But this hadith, which came later, abrogates that hadith. This the water of ghusl is required even if there is no seminal emission. There's one more hadith, inshallah, if there are any questions about this matter, we can discuss it in more detail after we finish this hadith. This is the last hadith for tonight, inshallah, hadith number 35, the hadith of Abi Ja'afar, Muhammad ibn Ali, ibn Hussein, ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib, <coughs> anhum. 
that uh, Abu Ja'far Muhammad the son of Ali the grandson of Ali ibn Abi Talib Ali the son of Al-Hussein the son of Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhum أنه كان هو وأبوه عند جابر ابن عبد الله رضي الله عنهم أجمعين وعندهم قوم that Abu Ja'far said he and his father was with Jabir ibn Abdullah the great companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam who narrated to us the hadith of the hajj of the Prophet which we will be studying inshallah in these days before the coming of hajj the hadith of Jabir they were with Jabir radiallahu anhu and there were people with him فَسَعَلُوهُ عَنَ الْغُسُلِ those people asked him about ghusl فَقَالَ يَكْفِيكَ صَاعٌ that one sa'a is sufficient for a ghusl a sa'a is for arba' amdad and a mud, one mud is a, a measure of volume you know we know about sa'a we just paid the cattle fitr and sa'a right <laughs> Sa'a is two, if you take the average hand, two like this, put them together, what you scoop up in your hand is a mud. And four of those mud, or four amdad, is one sa'a. Jabir ibn Abdullah said, Yakfika sa'a. That one sa'a of water is sufficient for a ghusl. What do you think? <laughs> Allahu Akbar. Someone said, Someone like you and I, someone better than you and I, better than us. Someone said, فَقَالَ رَجُلٌ One of the people there said, مَا يَكْفِينِي That's not enough for me. يعني one sa'a, four of these like this will take a ghusl with it. He said, not, it's not enough for me. I cannot take a ghusl with such. فَقَالَ جَابِرْ Then Jabir ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhuma, he said, كَانَ يَكْفِي مَنْ هُوَ أَوْفَرْ منك شعرا وخير منك يريد رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ثم أمن في ثوب he said that that amount of water was sufficient for one who had more hair than you whose hair was very long the hair of the Prophet used to come to his shoulders one who had more hair than you and one who was خير منك who was better than you that is he meant by that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم he used to suffice with one sa'a to take a ghusl sometimes. Then he used to lead us in that uh, cloth or in those clothing. He used to lead us in prayer. In one of the narrations of this hadith, it is said, كان النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يفرغ الماء على رأسه ثلاثا that he used to pour water over his head three times. Some of the narrations said three handfuls of water. Some said four am, uh, or sa'a, which is equivalent to about four amdad, four handfuls like this. And some said up to five amdad, yani five handfuls. And it was depending uh, according to the circumstances and the situation, the amount of water that was available or the condition that the person was, or that the Prophet was in when he was taking a ghusl, uh, he might have used a little more or a little less. But in general, that amount of water or nearly that amount was sufficient for the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Here the Shaykh He says the general meaning of this hadith That Abu Ja'far Was with his father In the presence Of the great companion of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Jabir ibn Abdullah Radiallahu anhuma May Allah be pleased with him That is Jabir and his father Abdullah 
uh, and there were people with him. Some of the people asked Jabir about the amount of water that is sufficient to take a ghusl from Janaba. And he said, Yakfika sa'an, that one sa'a is sufficient for you. And Hassan ibn Muhammad al Hanafi was there at that time with the people in the presence of Jabir and he said, This amount of water is not sufficient for me to take a ghusl from Janaba. Then Jabir said, It was sufficient for one who had more hair and more thick hair than you and one who was better than you. And he was more concerned about his state of tahara and his religion more than you. That is the messenger of Allah. He could not have taken a ghusl with this small amount of water if it was not sufficient because he was more concerned than you are or any of us about his state of tahara and about his religion and his worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then after, the shaykh says, then after he would take that ghusl with one sa'a of water, he used to lead them in prayer. And this indicates that uh, one sa'a, that the purification with one sa'a uh, is sufficient for one to be in a state of purification. Of course, our condition may be a little different in that we are not equal to the Prophet ﷺ and his companions and uh, we, are not, we are more careless and less concerned about the waste of things even especially the waste of water and they were more concerned about such things uh, the important thing for us here is that we should know not to waste the first lesson we learned from this that the Prophet ﷺ did not waste especially water which is the most precious thing on the earth water it is the source of life no one can live without it. Those are my words, not from the Shaykh. The Shaykh, he says five points from this hadith we derive. The first of them is the, ob- the obligation of taking ghusl from Janaba, And that is by pouring water over the parts of the body and letting it يعني, drip down or spill over every part of the body. Uh, so as long as the water, as soon as the water has touched every part of the body, then that's sufficient you have completed the obligation, that which is obligatory on you for performing a wudu. Also it is mentioned in Bidayat Mujtahid, the book of fiqh, which uh, compares the opinions of the madhahib, the, the uh, different uh, madhahib of fiqh, by uh, the Imam Ibn Rushd, in his book Bidayat Mujtahid, he says that this hadith is not a proof that it is obligatory to rub the body when making ghusl. Nor is it a proof that it's not obligatory. Yeah, and it's not a proof one way or another. It's not sufficient to prove that you have to rub the body, nor that you don't have to rub the body. This is the statement of Ibn Rushd. Also, and of course the most perfect thing is to rub the body, to be sure that the water reaches every part of the body. But this hadith is not a proof that you don't have to rub the body. Uh, also the sa'a, which is four amdad or four mud, cupping the hands together like this four times, is sufficient for ghusl from janaba. Al-Imam Ibn Daqiq Al-Eid, rahimahullah, may Allah have mercy on him, said that this doesn't mean that you cannot use more than four mud or that four mud is the exact amount that you have to use, not more or less. This doesn't mean that. Because there are other authentic hadith which point to the fact that the Prophet ﷺ used different amounts. 
sometimes more or less. So it doesn't mean that you are required to use four amdad and you cannot يعني, uh, use any other amount more or less. Uh, and here Ibn Daqiq al-Eid said that this differences in the use of the amount of water and Allah knows best may have been due to the difference in the time or in the condition. Different times and different conditions uh, like the amount of water being scarce at some times and there being more water at other times or that the Prophet ﷺ condition was different sometime he was traveling that's different than when you are at home resident fourth he said that it is mustahab or commendable or loved that a person should try to reduce the amount of water they use for tahara not to be wasteful and finally he said that we should speak against those who contradict or conflict with or oppose the sunnah of the Prophet we shouldn't allow someone to speak against the sunnah of the Prophet but we should correct them as Jabir anhu corrected the man who said it's not enough for me after he said that it was enough then that man spoke against it it was the sunnah of the Prophet but maybe he didn't know it was the sunnah of the Prophet so then Jabir anhu corrected him he didn't allow him to say such but he corrected him and said that it was sufficient for one who had more hair than you and one who was better than you meaning that this was sufficient in the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad this is the end of what we wanted to discuss tonight if there are any questions or comments or corrections and there are a few moments remaining before the adhan uh, perhaps we will take them any questions? Yes, Naam, Fadl Yafi. Speak up. Naam. Allah knows best, but uh, we can say that the question is about the statement, the chapter heading uh, that offer this hadith, nocturnal sexual discharge does this mean only at night if there's uh, semen emission or wet dream uh, is it only required to make a ghusl if it happened at night no it's not only required at night if it is at night or at day naam Allah knows best any other naam jazakallah khair because generally people sleep at night so usually uh, these kind of instructions come for the general conditions of the people although there may be exceptions to them there are people who sleep at day there are any people who work at night and then there are some people who sleep day and night and we seek refuge from such sleeping day and night <laughs> now is there any to when are going to take a or just by intention is there a supplication to say when a person is going to take janaba? Take, uh, take a ghusl, I mean. Jazakallah khair. Can somebody take those questions from the door and also leave the door open in case uh, they call the adhan so we can hear the adhan? Um, I don't know. I don't recall now that there's any supplication for taking a ghusl. I don't know that there's any supplication. But uh, there should be intention for whatever we do of ibadah. Any act of ibadah, there should be intention. Not verbal or oral intention, but the intention that you are taking this ghusl to purify yourself, to be in the state of tahara, so that you may 
perform acts of worship that require tahara. Any other question or comment? Yes, Fadda. I don't know. This question if a person is taking ghusl and they wash the private parts first, then they make wudu. During the course of washing the rest of the body, they touch the private parts. Do they have to uh, start again? Huh? You know, there's difference of opinion amongst the scholars in general about touching the private parts. Some said that if someone touched their private part, that this requires wudu, and others said no. And there are proofs for both, but the most correct opinion is that it does not invalidate your state of tahara. Some said only if you touched it with sexual intention. Yeah. And this may be the best opinion between the two opinions. That if a person touches their private parts normally without any sexual intention, that it definitely does not uh, violate their state of Tahara and Allah knows best. But uh, it, it's the, the most strongest opinion is that it does not. That it does not and Allah knows best. Um, but let me say this though, in reference to that question, that when the person makes ghusl, the first thing after washing the hands, the first thing that the person should do is make istinja, wash the private parts. Pouring water with the right hand and washing the private part with the left hand. After this, the wudu is performed. The, the istinja is performed first so that the person will be clean from that after washing, rubbing their hands on the ground or on the wall or using soap or some other cleanser or cleaning uh, agent to wash their hands, then the performing of wudu. The, when the person then performs wudu, as we said, there's no need to wash any part of the body again. Any part of the body that has been washed in wudu is finished. The istinja is finished. It is only necessary then, as mentioned in the hadith, thumma ghasala uh, then he washed the rest of his body, meaning the remaining parts of the body that he didn't already wash. So, if it happened by accident, but it shouldn't happen intentionally, that the person touched their private parts, then inshallah there is no harm in it, and Allah knows best. And according to the opinion, that touching the private part without sexual intention does not invalidate your state of tahara. And I think this is the strongest opinion, and Allah knows best. Any other comment or question before the event? Anyway, let me just mention here that Al-Imam Al-Baghawi, one of the great scholars of Hadith, in his book Sharh Al-Sunnah, The Explanation of Sunnah, uh, and that book he has collected many of the Hadith that are recorded in Al-Bukhari and Muslim and Abu Dawud and Tirmidhi, and other books like the Muwatta of Imam Malik and other such books of Hadith, <coughs> and he has arranged them according to the chapters of Fiqh, and he has also added comments from the Imams and from Sahaba and Tabi'een and the scholars of Fiqh and Hadith, in discussions about the fiqh or jurisprudence matters. Al-Imam Badawi, rahimahullah, he mentions in uh, Shara Sunnah concerning this matter under the hadith concerning which we have just discussed, he says that the people of knowledge or the scholars have differed about the, the condition of mani or the semen of the human being. Is it tahara, is it tahir, clean or najis? Then he says that uh, 
the first opinion is that it is clean and this has been narrated from Ibn Abbas and Sa'id radiallahu anhum and it is also the opinion of Aqa and it is the saying of Sufyan and the opinion of Al-Imam Shafi, Al-Imam Ahmed, Al-Imam Ishaq, Ibn Rahway and they said that you only have to scratch it to remove it, it doesn't have to be washed the second opinion is the opinion of those who said that it's najis and that it has to be washed with water and this has been reported from Umar ibn al-Khattab and it is also the saying of Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib and it is the saying of Imam, Al-Imam Malik and Al-Imam Al-Awza'i and it is also uh, and, the, and the opinion of Ashab al-Ra'i Ashab al-Ra'i means the Hanafi Madhab the scholars of the Hanafi Madhab it was their opinion that it is najis and if it is moist or wet it has to be washed with water and if it is dry it only has to be removed by scraping and this opinion is the opinion that's based on the hadith of the Prophet the, the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha uh, and then, they, and then Al-Imam Badawi says in refutation of those who said uh, that it is najis those who said that it is clean uh, they refuted them uh, by saying that the washing of the semen from the clothing this hadith is not in conflict with the hadith of scraping the semen if it is dry they are not contradictory uh, and that the washing is only على طريق الاستحباب والنظافة حتى لا يرى على ثوبه أثره that means that washing the ghusl, a washing of the semen, it is as a, a matter of istihbab, that it is preferable or commendable to do it, but not obligatory, and it is a matter of an-nawafa, cleanliness, general cleanliness, not that it is najis, uh, so that no unclean thing uh, would remain on the clothing. This is the statement of Al-Imam Al-Baghawi, rahimahullah. Any other comments or questions before we uh, go to the prayer? If there are no comments or questions or corrections, let me just make one last comment. <laughs> the use of water. The use of water. No. Why is the use of it? It's emphasized. No. How much do you do with the It's not similar to, uh, it's not the same. No. It requires washing. No. Huh? Does it require taking a bath? Yes. It requires taking a bath. No, it doesn't require taking a bath. It requires to be washed. Uh, it should be washed from the body. Washed though. Not only scraped, but it has to be washed with water. And the person should make wudu. The place where it affected the body should be washed and wudu should be performed. This is, uh, you are speaking about prosthetic fluid. Now, Okay, in closing, uh, let me just please take this opportunity, not let it pass us by, to mention a statement of Al-Imam Al-Nawi, rahimahullah, in his explanation of this, of the hadith that we talked about, um, the hadith of Um Sulaim, or the hadith of Um Salama, where Um Sulaim, radiallahu anha, she said, Inna allaha la yastahi min al-haq, that Allah is not shy from the truth. Here Al-Imam Nawawi mentions two opinions about this statement. And one of them he said that Allah is not shy from mentioning any example, such as the example of the comparison of the fly that's mentioned in the Quran, that such a thing, though the example you might consider trivial, but even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He is not 
they are hesitant to mention such an example in order to bring about understanding of the people. There should be no hesitation, hesitation in uh, mentioning any example or speaking about anything or asking about anything in the matters of truth and the things that are required for the people to know. The other opinion he said about this statement of Um Sulaim, he said that its meaning is that Allah did not command us to be shy from the truth. She is saying that Allah did not command us to be shy from the truth. When there is a matter of truth, don't think that you are being modest by not speaking about it. No, Allah doesn't require us to be modest in such matters. That this is not really modesty. In matters that you need to know in your religion, it's not modest to remain silent. But the right thing is to ask about it and to know. Uh, not only Allah didn't order us to be modest in that, in that case, but Allah doesn't allow it. And she made this statement to yani, uh, present her reason for asking such a question that was a necessity for her to ask even though it was of the matters that women ordinarily would be bashful or shy to ask about or to mention especially in the presence of men especially in the presence of men Al-Imam Nawawi says here that it is not proper when any issue comes to a person about which they are required to ask then they should not allow shyness from asking such a question to prevent them from asking it. Because hesitating or refusing to ask such a question that one needs to know about, that this is not haya, it's not real modesty. Because real modesty, as the Prophet ﷺ said, al-haya khayrun kulluhu, that modesty is completely good, all of it is good. And he also said, Al-Haya'u la ya'ati illa bi khayrin. And that Al-Haya'u or modesty or shyness, it doesn't bring anything except khayr, good. And here, Al-Imam Nawawi says, holding back from asking a question in that condition, when you are ignorant about something and need to know it, that this is not good, this is evil. So don't say you're remaining silent that this is modesty, because modesty only brings good. And remaining silent when you need to ask a question doesn't bring good, it brings evil. Uh, finally, he mentions the statement of Aisha radiallahu anha that's also recorded in Al-Bukhari. The statement of Aisha radiallahu anha, she said, Ni'am al-Nisa nisa al-Ansar. That, oh, how wonderful and beautiful and great are blessed are the women of the Ansar. Lam yamna'hunna al-hayah an Yani that modesty, the women of the Ansar, modesty did not prevent them from seeking fiqh or understanding of the religion. Aisha radiallahu anha said, oh, how blessed are the women of the Ansar. Modesty, though they were modest, but their modesty didn't prevent them from seeking fiqh or understanding of the deen. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.